Hi, welcome back to JaffeWoodwinds.com. Today we're out in Glendale, California with one of the most uh, revered and respected uh, woodwind players in our country. Uh, for over 40 years now, Dan Higgins has been at the very top of the industry, a first call session musician, uh, but not only a, a fantastic instrumentalist, an arranger and composer uh, extraordinaire. And Dan has worked in every facet of this industry. It, it's really remarkable uh, to, to think that one person uh, could be uh, so valuable in, in uh, movie scores, in TV shows, recordings, uh, award TV shows, jazz big bands, in orchestral concerts as a jazz soloist, as a concert soloist, in addition to being a composer and arranger. Uh, Dan has really covered the gamut as far as what a woodwind multiple instrumentalist can do and can achieve. Uh, I'm just going to read a few of, the, um, of his achievements and a lot of the other things will be listed in the text accompanying this video. Uh, he's done over 700 film scores. I mean, Jesus, <laughs> 700 film scores. TV shows such as uh, the Simpsons, uh, the Academy Awards, obviously, Dancing with the Stars. He's been a favored woodwind instrumentalist for such renowned composers as John Williams, uh, Quincy Jones, Pat Williams, Sammy Nestico. He's played with Toshiko Akiyoshi and Lou Tabakin's big band, Gordon Goodwin's big band, uh, Wayne Bergeron's big band. Uh, uh, it, it's rather remarkable that one person uh, can achieve all this and achieve it at the highest levels. This is not just someone who plays the instruments and works a lot. Uh, this is the number one guy. And I'm, Dan, I'm thankful no. that you came out and spent the time today. <laughs> well, you're very kind. <laughs> uh, but I mean, uh, just reading all the things you've done and just preparing for this, uh, most a lot of it I knew, but there was stuff uh, that I didn't know. and. You know, when you see the wealth of work over the career that you've had out here in Los Angeles, it's really astonishing. Uh, but the great thing is that you're still uh, searching and looking and practicing hard and looking for other uh, areas to develop, and it's uh, a real inspiration to us, and I hope to our viewers as well. So let, let's go back a little bit and see how you, you, know, you achieve these levels and how you, you know, uh, built your uh, level of artistry. Um, where, were you, where, did you, where were you born and where did, when did you start music? Well, uh, yeah, I'll try to keep it short because I <laughs> listen to some of these things and everybody goes on so much and it's all interesting, but for other people it's not. So, But I, <laughs> I was born in Boston and my dad was a jazz piano player and then he was drafted into World War II. And uh, he was shot in the shoulder and he lost that uh, technique and he went on to get a PhD in history. And we moved around, we lived in Wisconsin and Duluth and other places, <clears throat> we ended up in Long Beach, California. And in fifth grade, you can take band. 
fourth grade that started the string. So good public school right. music program. And I, I, uh, I said, uh, they had an assembly and you could play an instrument if you got a signature from your parents, you know. And so I came home, I said, Dad, you know, because he had a little jazz quartet in the military, and what's easy, you know? And he said, the trumpet has three valves. So uh, I said, <laughs> trumpet. And uh, so I went to bed, and I come bounding down, grab my lunch, I grab the permission slip, I'm out the door, and, hey, Dan, uh, what else did they show you? <laughs> and because I, I think that my parents had a powwow that night, that do we want a trumpet in the house? And so <clears throat> I said, uh, Oh, the band director showed me the clarinet. He said, if you learn the clarinet, you could learn the saxophone and the flute. And he goes, how's that? And I go, no problem. You erase that, and that was it. So I would be a trumpet player uh, right. right now if it wasn't for that because I just enjoyed music. And so I went on, and I played in uh, middle school and high school and got an alto sax, never took any lessons, but I had one uh -huh. so I could play in the jazz band. And this is all in Long Beach? Long Beach. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Long Beach Wilson, great band director, <clears throat> Roland Sandberg. I had a nice teacher from... Uh, uh, the uh, Long Beach Municipal Band, which was the full-time band. It still goes, but not full-time. It was the last full-time concert band that, that a city owned. Huh. A, a municipal band for wow. all the functions. It was, it's still alive, but it just does a summer session. Uh -huh. And uh, uh, I, I was trying to think of uh, some influences back then. I had my teacher made music fun. Ralph Sarber, just a great cat, made fun, didn't we weren't really dealing with it. Was this a teacher who came to your house for yes, lessons? Yes, he drove up in a Dodge Dart for $3. <laughs> and, uh, and, then I, uh, and then my band director gave me the band, and I wrote charts for the band. And how and, old were you at this point? Well, you know, I was high school, so 16. And, wow. Uh, wow. So he gave me the band at my senior year, just he would let me direct it. And so he, Ralph gave me some, the fun part of music, High school band director, Mr. Samberg, gave me responsibility music. And, ha and had you studied arranging? Or Not really. It was, but my dad had, had the piano moved up to my room. Okay. So I just thought, uh, you can't walk by a piano and not want to play it. I'm right. curious about harmony. Right. But not formally trained or anything. So, uh, and then when I got on to college, it's Jim Riggs who, and Terry Steele who taught me music. So right. it's a good order because if I hear about people starting and they start with teachers too strict. And maybe the fun got out of it. So I still have a lot of fun playing, thanks right. to Ralph. And, you know, I could put it off. And so that's how I got started in playing clarinet. And I had an alto sax in, in high school, and I could play in the jazz band. But I didn't know how to play it. Right. Who, who were the players that you listened to, the, the professional well, players? Well, my dad had a beautiful collection, so I listened to, you know, Train and Bird. And I, I didn't really know what they were all doing. And I love Pete Fountain. I played the clarinet, so I was a Benny Goodman and Pete Fountain, Artie Shaw fan. Sure. But that <clears throat> was a little more understandable, and I had a little Dixieland band in, in high school. Right. Because uh, the clarinet, and, you know. And then, I, you know, we'd try to play jazz, but you know, I would only, we'd like, I'd do good over D minor 7 for a while. <laughs> only if it was a two that would, chord. That, that's my people's chord, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so until I learned harmony, I was just sort of, so I, I was okay at music, pretty good. You know, and so I decided to, I, I didn't get into any music schools. Just, my tapes wouldn't get me anywhere. Really? Right. So I went to That's Wisconsin anyway, University of Wisconsin. Because in Oakland, is that in Eau Claire or Madison? Madison. Okay. And uh, I, I, I went and I re-auditioned. The they let me in on a one-semester probation just because I showed all the way up in California. Wow. And I had a horrible audition. I even laughed. I said, <laughs> well, if you let me in, you're... You're really stupid because I was homesick and really playing poorly. But they go, we'll give you a semester. And then I, then I got my feet on the ground. I had a good teacher. I started playing. 
and and I played lead alto in the jazz band there too. And I go, I don't even know how to play the sax. This is not a great jazz band, but the concert band program was very good. Right. <clears throat> and in the jazz band was Steve Houghton. Well, he's a very great drummer. So we said, let's let's get out of here. Let's go to North Texas. Let's go where it's happening. And uh, I said, yeah. And I came in from my jury, and they said, We're, I hear you're leaving us after they gave me the... I go, I feel bad, but I go, I got to go learn the saxophone. And I got to go to where it's, the, where it's the best, I think. Um, and, roughly and Berkeley what? was there, but it didn't offer a degree at the time. And I didn't... I wanted my parents... It was a hard phone call my parents saying, right. I'm transferring after yeah. one semester. Right. But they were, they they were, were good. Cool. Uh -huh. And I went to North Texas. And, uh, and this is roughly in the early 70s, mid-70s? 70... 74. 74, okay. Yeah. And so we went down there and we were roommates. <clears throat> and here's the biggest lesson that I got was that Steve Houghton made the one o'clock band because he was so good, yet we were both in the Wisconsin band. Right. And I was in the sixth band. Right. And that was like, that was a great motivator. Well, that's, you know, there is something to that uh, competitive thing and, and realizing, hey, there's that much more to go. But to have that many bands there with that many sax players must have been a real motivation. Ten bands, and a lot of people were about 250 sax players. Some were classical, some were education players, and then, of course, there's 50 in the band. And uh, so I, uh, I really was challenged there. And my first lesson with Terry Steele, <clears throat> he said, play a G scale, Dan. And I played G, A, B, side C, D, E, fork, F sharp, G. And he goes, we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> and he says, why'd you play a side C? And I said, is there another C? Because <laughs> in the clarinet, then it's not there. There it is. So we laugh about that to this day. And, uh, and then I, I studied with him and, and got my feet on the ground and <laughs> started to practice a lot more. <laughs> but the, it was nice because there were goals. Each year you could move up a couple bands or so. Right. And that's a, that's a nice place to evaluate your, your performances at North Texas. Well, because you had so many parameters and also so many people to judge yourself against. And, yeah. And that's... It's just mini L.A. or mini New York because you're surrounded by, by the competition Right. And if you didn't do well there, I suppose it would be an insight to maybe you wouldn't do well, well in the profession. Right. Yeah. And, and I always recommend that to young players is you know, try to find, a, if you can, get to a place where you'll be challenged to see how you'll stack up. Right. It might come help you later. Sure. And, and so at, in, in college, as an undergrad, you're really focusing on saxophone. Alto is your main uh, saxophone at that point? Yeah, that's all I had. Right. And, and clarinet. So I put the clarinet in the closet because I could ah. already play that well enough, and I would just get it out every three months to see what I was losing. Right. And I started <laughs> flute because I was so far behind. I just go, well, I'll just deal with the clarinet later. And I was playing alto, I needed more flute in the jazz bands. Right. And I needed to learn those instruments, and I was so better, I was better on the clarinet just from playing it in high school, that right. that was enough to get me through get any th clarinet right. issues. And, and at this point, as an undergrad, did you have any career goals yet? Had anything start crystallizing for you? I just kind of want, like everybody else, just kind of want to play like Charlie Parker and Cannibal. I just, I didn't think much about, I didn't think anything about recording or, or, I didn't think anything, and then Steve, when we graduated, Steve went to New York, and I, I knew one player of kind of a pro in an L.A. area, so I go, well, I'm going to try L.A. 
it's kind of flip a coin in a way. Right. There's also a vibrant community. Some guys right. went to Vegas at the time, and I go, I, I want to get, I want to get to where it's the next level. Right. And by this time, you had already graduated to the one o'clock band. You were the played one in my last two years. I played second alto, and then the last year I played lead. So right. it was a sort of a nice progression. And I, I didn't get any graduate work done there. I just got my bachelor's and. And I left. Right. And so you went out to L.A. just knowing this one connect, having this one yeah. connection. Okay. So, uh, and you had now developed more on the flute. And yeah. you had, you still had your clarinet. So you had the, you had the basic saxophone, clarinet, flute thing going as, as a young yeah. gambler. Yeah. And I, like, alto sax always gets you in the door. And then you, if you needed to get a gig and they go, oh, do you play flute too? You know, you could shore that up. But your saxophone playing was the most dynamic thing to get you going. And especially because I'm just playing in bands. I'm playing with Toshiko's band, subbing. Well, let, let, let's just backtrack a minute. Once you get to L.A. and you move out here, how did, how did you get your foot in the door? Was there a particular person who opened some doors for you or several people who would do that? What, because there are so many talented players you know, in both L.A. and New York, certainly in the late 70s. How did, how did it sort of build? How did the career build once you got here? It, I think it's still similar to this day, but there's the rehearsal band sort of scene. So Bill Holman had a band. So I played in that band, joined that band. I'm sitting next to Bob Cooper and Lanny Morgan. I was going, oh, wow. And, and this is at the Union, where, he, where he, they would rehearse? He would rehearse a different place. I see. But, and Bill Watrous moved to L.A., and he didn't want anything to do with any studio players. He wanted <laughs> young guys. and So I fit the bill, and I played in his band. And then I subbed in Toshiko's band because I knew Gary Foster because he had done a clinic at North Texas. I see. He gave me the impression that everybody played like him when he came to North Texas. <laughs> And I, when I got to L.A., I go, God, everybody's going to play like that. It's just so good. Turned out not everybody but plays like, like Gary. But yeah. uh, <laughs> that was like, I got, that was a little scared. And I started hearing some people not play quite as well. I go, I, I might have a chance here, you know. But yeah. uh, I subbed in that band, and then I joined the band for a couple of years. So I, once you work around there, you, those, there, are, there are more working players and studio players that do pl participate in those bands. So... Uh, you like Bill Reichenbach or Buddy Rich, uh, Buddy Childers, and you start working with people that are also doing maybe a TV show, right? And then they they might be able to recommend you to get going. But shoot, I went on the road and the Top Forty band. Uh, uh, I played in a, a Klezmer band in Fairfax District. I played. Uh, Dixieland outside of Rams Stadium. The Rams were so doing a wide diversity of types of gigs. Oh yeah, the rock bands. Uh, I went on the road with Engelbert, I Humper Dink. It was a nice, nice year. Get some money to buy a home. Right. But I'm doing all these things and millions of weddings and everything. It's just keeping me going. We're, you know, Sammy Davis at the Greek Theater. All the kind of rehearsals and shows start right. to go. In the meantime, I'm kind of practicing and then kind of work my way into some TV work th through Joe Soldo. Right, Joe. Which yeah. is a huge thing. It's, he set me in, in that direction, and he had five or six different TV shows. Right. And yeah. then that's another circle of people. Once you did one TV right. show, they're all the same. Right, right. So you're encountering many different players from different areas of the industry and being open to doing anything and everything. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you never turn a gig down. Right. Never. And, and you always learn something from the gig. It might be a, a pop horn section, and, and then it might be a, 
a, a vintage 20s band or something like that. And, right. Or working with somebody that's from the 40s playing in the mood and and, and they you can, well, this is a little different than the way we played it. Right, the phrasing, some, some little accentuation. Yeah, yeah. and it's just yeah. like you sort of get all that stuff, you get all the experience that eventually is what they're paying for as a session player. So right. I, 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 if there's one line I have <clears throat> or thought, is it studio work, when somebody says my goal is to be a studio player, I, I, I tend to stop them. I say that being a studio player is a result of playing well. The, the, the goal is to play well, play well. And, and you're playing so well they want to record you. But to, to think that you want to be a recording thing and look for those openings, it's not, doesn't, in our field, doesn't work that way. Right, so, uh, but, but you're, in a sense, you're preparing yourself as a total musician and as someone who loves playing lots of music and different styles. You're not putting yourself in any one, uh, locking yourself in any one category. And, uh, but now in doing all this, uh, how did you start building uh, your expertise on the, the auxiliary instruments? Now you had flute, but now you have to also play piccolo, an alto flute, bass clarinet, tenor sax, soprano sax, baritone sax, and you, you do all of this. Uh, yeah, that's just a... So how did that... It's how a did little they... by little. Uh, I think I borrowed a bass clarinet for, for many years because I would get one job every two months. It wasn't worth it. Um, I did play soprano in college and played in some legit quartets, which helped. Um, and, and then the tenor, I had to try to learn how to play the tenor and so, um, because I was playing with Jerry Hay and doing dates, like record dates. And so, right. I mean, it was like, I was... With his horn section. With his horn section. Right, right. You know, and that's, so uh, that, you just sort of get into that now, the tenor becomes sort of a featured thing and you, I bought records of rock and roll guys and transcribed things that <clears throat> I wouldn't necessarily know. You can't play jazz on these dates, and you need another frame of reference. Right, so, there's a different rhythmic feel and accentuation to the music. Yeah, so you listen right. to the players that are doing it, and, and I just, just adored all of them so much that there wasn't anything I always felt like I was dumbing down to. In fact, it was, you know, coming up. Right. Well, th I think that's an important uh, point to make, especially for young players who come out of the conservatories and who want to be doublers and maybe were classical sax majors. Uh, I find a lot of those type of people who then come in and want to double, uh, but maybe their jazz uh, development is behind or they don't deal at all with rock and roll because the conservatories don't offer anything like that. And some of them think that that is going to be enough. Coming out of a conservatory as a concert sax major, and you may play flute and oboe, maybe clarinet too, and some well. But they think that's enough to do. And I think your example is, is great that there's, it's just the first step coming out of a college. It's just the first step in building a career. It's not, it's not a guarantee for a lifelong career. And it's not uh, also, it's not even... It's like all of a sudden you might spend a lot of time on the alto sax like in college and then your clarinet sits there. And then you might stop that for a bit and focus on the flute. Uh, it was, I think, I, th I started taking flute lessons again and I think I was 35. And when 
with the and you had already established. And you had already, already established. planned millions of movies. And you established. I'm already playing the gigs. Yeah. And uh, I go, this isn't right. And uh, so I, I got one of the teachers at USC. He just went to the top, and he said, well, you'll need the, you know, the Tafanil Gobert. And I go, what, what's that? I didn't know what that is. I mean, that's embarrassing. But there's, because I sort of was floundering a little bit. And then I just started again on the flute. So I spent a lot of time on those couple years there, not thinking too much about other instruments. And then you just go like this. Right. And, and, and you just, it's, it's, it's good because you make these charges. And if you think you're going to go, okay, well, I'll practice a half hour clarinet today and I'll play the flute. No, I just don't practice that way. I, I just pick a, 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 you know, a, an instrument that I'm going to highlight. Is and that I, still today? The yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I just kind of disagree with that because all you're doing is practicing the switching of the instruments, but you're not getting any better. So the best way for me to practice a flute is don't play anything. That's not even well, the flute. Well, well there's, there's, I, I've experienced that to some degree. <laughs> like if, if, if I, I like to do recitals because I always find that focus is me and I get better uh, by doing that. Uh, but in doing that, you're focusing in a very narrow way and maybe only on one or two instruments instead of three or four or five. Uh, and, and, and I think at a certain point, after you've had a, you know, you've gotten your fundamentals together in a sense and you really want to push one, I think that's... Yeah, you, it's just that way you can kind of <coughs> you can creep into it and you're not, you, you, you can get into the outer limits of it a little bit more. And as opposed to just thinking, well, I'll just, I'll just kind of get a little better. You need to get a lot better. And it really is fun because you get, you know, the interest. There's one time a year that I actually play the flute well, and that's the, the, the day I come home from vacation where I haven't played anything. And I play the flute, and I, it's, I can do things I could never do. And then I play the clarinet for a half hour. I'm back for the next year, I'm the same. <laughs> It goes right back to where I was, which is like 85% of what I could do. Right. But the 85% has to be a professional. Right. There was an awkward right. stage there where you, you think you're pretty good at home, and you get there, and all of a sudden they want you to hold a high F sharp soft, and you can't do it. <laughs> so you, you go, ah, you know, you just get that, or you maybe have to play a little louder. But uh, that's, that's how I think about the, right. switching the instruments is to make a... Now I play a lot more clarinet on movies, and then for... Many years I played in the flute section, and Gary Foster would play clarinet, or but I would be a flute too, so I was very, very into that. And now, um, just different changes in the town, they still want to have me there, but I play clarinet, but so they'll have a sax player there when they need it. I mean, and then also flute if I right. if they want something right. jazzy. Right. right. So I'm I'm kind of so now in my clarinet duties I have to maintain that a little bit harder. Right. And I can relax on the flute a little bit because I just don't have to have that pressure coming in on a movie playing next to those people. Right, on so that level. Right. You have to be willing to put down an instrument uh, here and there to, to, to satisfy your, your work. Yeah, but I think uh, uh, to me, one of the big messages here is that here you are at 35, you've established yourself in many idioms here, you're a first call player now and you've decided you still need to improve, and you went ahead and took the initiative to go study and devote yourself to that. Because I find so many young players coming out of college <clears throat> in their late 20s and 30s stop studying. 
they don't study anymore. And I, I, I have never understood that. I, I mean, I'm still looking to study. Actually, I'm trying to work on my piano, finally, oh, <laughs> after yeah, all these years. It's on my list. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it, I think that studying and the desire to study and to, to prove, I think that's indi indicative of the passion one has for making music. And I think that's a telltale sign. Uh, so when I hear people who have stopped studying, they just, or haven't studied in 20, 25 years, and you're living in New York or Los Angeles where there are so many great musicians, something's not right. There's something not right. Yeah, you, you, you may not have it all, and you, <laughs> you think you're, you're doing pretty well, but then you just want to follow the path of the players sit next to you. I mean, most of the time I'm playing next to the first kind of player in the opera here on movies. Or John Williams, first clarinet player, and I'm playing second. Uh, sometimes we reverse, not often, but um, you, you, there's your lesson is right there. You, you realize that and you want to do it the way they did it. And on the flute, I kind of picked it up and I did learn it, but I didn't learn it through the literature, obviously, but I didn't even know the etude books that were like awful, awful. And, uh, but, so, you, but you have. That now of, I have. You I have. have. <laughs> and that's, that's the point. That, like, you're talking about that tier learning. And, and, and that's what's so invigorating about music. It's endless possibilities of learning and improving. Yeah. You know, I mean, how many Heifetzes are there? How many birds are there? You know, <laughs> the, the, you know that's what we're all yeah. working towards. Yeah. I mean, it really, uh, and, and you think you're, you know, you're, if you're going to get a date playing like Charlie Parker, well, it may happen. Uh, there was a Cuba, a Gooding movie. He was a deep sea diver, and it was set in the 40s. And uh, he was a black, so he was being, it was a lot of prejudice against him, and that was the, sort of the backdrop of this movie. But he crossed the street, and they needed Charlie Parker, because that was just going to be something that would be playing. At that time. And so I was in Ireland with, taking my parents on a vacation, and I get the call, and they said, can you play like Charlie Parker? And I go, I've been waiting 30 years for this call. You know, and I go, yes. And it was Mark Isham, and he played trumpet, and we just had a little quartet, one mic, at Peter Erskine. And we just set up, and we just, it was, he was ripping Bloom Dido. So it was just sort of blues. Okay. And, and I knew the solo, and I, they, they came in to listen to it, and the, the music editor said, do you think you can play it like that? And I go, yeah. So we played the head, which wasn't Bloom Dido, and then I oh. launched into half a bird solo and went on to my own thing. Yeah. And I walked out and I'm thinking, do they just think they could play it once for you? You know, like, that, that, I like this color to paint. And you go, oh, I got that color. Yeah, make it, was, it more blue. It was funny. I didn't say, I didn't tell them anymore. It was, but there, there you go. I finally got to play a session and play like bird. Bird, yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, That's it, one. I'm waiting for the next one. <laughs> well, it, but it's an interesting thing that uh, in, even in pursuing the thing that you love the most, but let's say you, you love bebop the most and you want to do it, but it's commercially not going to be that uh, lucrative or you, and you may not have a chance to demonstrate it uh, that often. But somehow the effort put into learning that style and developing your ears and developing the technique and understanding how to inflect in that style it carries over in other musics. It, it, it's, a, it's like a musical uh, maturity in the way you're building your fundamentals and the way you're building your, your expression and your ears. Uh, it's, not, it's not just, in other words, if one is just practicing music for the sake of making money in a particular idiom because that's what you think is going to work and I'm only going to focus on that, 
That's a very limited way to uh, approach an instrument and music, I think. I, I think you'll, you'll probably lose to somebody that does have the passion for those other things. So you, if you just do the work just enough to get by, it, it, it's probably those days are gone for instrumentalists, and unfortunately. So if you just don't, I went, did a clinic, and I started with a flute, and we, we talked about it, and then clarinet, and I noticed the sax player didn't get his clarinet out. And uh, I said, you don't play the clarinet. He goes, no, I don't want to play the clarinet. I just play jazz tenor. And I go, I just stopped the clinic. I go, this is great because he's decided. He, he's, he's good. He has, he want, he's got his direction. And we're all looking here. <laughs> we're not sure. But he's good. And I always respected that because if you don't want to play it, don't waste your time on it. On the other hand, but it's a matter of weighing practicality. Are you a person who's willing a, to sacrifice? He's a jazz teacher. Okay. You know, so there's, he found a niche and it's great. Okay. He can pass out great, his great, great jazz on to many people. But, uh, but he had decided, and if you do decide you want to play the clarinet, I think you need to be all in. And if you don't think you're all in or you just don't like it, then why do it? I, I don't think that it's worth your time because there'll be someone else that really likes it. And while you're not liking it, they're going to be getting better. I think they're going to want to hire that player. You know, that reminds me of uh, a statement. My, one of my childhood heroes was Bill Bradley, because I was a sports fanatic, and I still am. And uh, Bradley was everything. You know, he was the, the number one college basketball player at Princeton. He was an All-American. He was a Rhodes Scholar. And then he eventually came to my hometown team, the Knicks. But Bradley uh, had a book, came out a number of years ago. It was like a coffee table-sized book. I think it was... Oh, boy, I'm not remembering the title. But in it, he talked about growing up in the St. Louis area. And his hero was Ed McCauley, who was a uh, star of the St. Louis Hawks. And McCauley would drill him and, 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 and talk to him about uh, the mental approach to the game. And he said, if you're not practicing, you know, if you have time and you're not on the court practicing, someone else somewhere is. And when the two of you meet, that person's going to win. And that's what drove Bradley to the heights that he did as a basketball player, which were extraordinary. Um, and he was a fanatic practicer uh, uh, on the court. And I, a side note, he, I remember seeing a practice of the Knicks uh, during summertime once. And everyone was running up the court, you know, doing their sprints. Bradley was doing the sprints backpedaling. And it's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Bradley realized when you're on defense and you're running back, you want to see the ball. So he wanted to make sure he was cool running backwards so he could see everything, always thinking. So there is that thing of always realizing what you want to do, but that if you don't want to do it, there is someone out there yeah, who is going to do it. Yeah, and, and, and especially art, art, you're driven. I mean, and some of our work, we never know what we're going to play when we show up. So... Some of it's driven by fear of being exposed, and we don't want that. You know, we want to sound good, and we want to be prepared. So this running backwards is similar to that. He's just preparing for the inevitable guy that's driving on him. And, right. And here this, somebody's got something, and you go, boy, I need, the, I need to practice. I don't want to be embarrassed in front of him. And we're, you know, we're, we play different instruments. We're... We have a harder thing than just the violin player that can just sit there and do. They're they're capable of doing our work right out of college, I mean, right. and right. it's it's appropriate. Right. They are good. Right. And uh, we 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 
we have a different thing. They never know. Right. What we, we never know. What we have to play improvise. Most of my jobs involve some sort of improv. I would say maybe seventy-five percent. Uh, last week was uh, this uh, lady in the Tramp Disney movie when we had um, um, Nicholas Payton come out, and I was I had written arrangements, but I was playing jazz clarinet, and and so sort of Dixieland right. set in the teens. So we had that backdrop. So that's. Uh, that's just a little element there. That's just that's a, just good to have, know how to do it. But you want to sound good, and here you have a world class jazz artist there too. Right, who knows that style inside and uh, out. You know, you just don't want to just you know have two licks, and and it's uh, so that we just we just enjoy it. But if you didn't improvise, I don't think you could do what I do. Right. You could do a lot of it, but not uh, half of it. Is they're going to say. Oh, this is a, this is a, a guy that just started playing sax, right? I, and I'll do that like this is a beginner. Right. I do Lisa Simpson now. I, I was always bleeding gums, but now for the last three years I do Lisa, and uh, they said there was a theft on the show of the Simpsons, so they're going through each character what they would spend their money on, and they got to Lisa what she wants the new baritone, the big shiny one in the store. <laughs> so they I couldn't make the session, but they wanted me to do it, so I did it at home, in my studio and. They have a surveillance tape to see if you know she bought it or whatever. So you know the guy's bored; he's reading because just you know it's a music store. Someone's working out in the law right there in the store, boring the the owner down. So every time they went, they would she would never be playing the same thing. So I gave them a minute of blues, a minute of bebop, a minute of of uh, funk, and a and a minute of something Latin, and they could splice it in. Maybe the scene is eight, ten seconds. It feels longer because right. they're va advancing the tape. Right. But she's always going to be working out on another thing to check the baritone. On. Right. So that <laughs> that that there you go. I got that was blowing. There was no music. They just said we need yeah. give us a little bit of each one of these things. Yeah. And uh, that was the job that day. And I might come in on the Simpsons. They, that the previous episode they they tempt in quad bowling, flute. I didn't know. Oh really? So oh my they had a lot of that stuff on the suite from the suite. Yeah. yeah, and it was just me, and the strings had already left. Yeah, and they had uh, that 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 was they like, so they had kind of maybe uh, sound alikes of that stuff. So that was I was just flute, and I played the clarinet, and they wanted to do each cue at a time, and I would always say, let's just do the flute parts, and we'll come right. back and do the clarinet. Well, they don't want to do that, so I well, they, they that's the job. It. So I played the flute, and it was pretty good. Played the clarinet, pretty good, and the next one. Flute again, okay. We get near the end now. It's to the end credit now. My flute, I'm struggling, because but I have enough to get through, right. and uh, I don't say that it's perfect, but it 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 is the job, right? And um, maybe you take one, leave one note out, or you take one thing out, or you use some fake fingerings or something to get through a hellish right. thing. And you're just sight reading it. There's no way they, you just don't know. Right. You, you have just to turn it over right. and you go, oh, okay. That's, what, that's what's next. <laughs> that's yeah. the fun part. Right. We, we like that. I mean, it's a challenge and it's a... Uh, but the point is, even though you didn't know what was coming up, you, you walk into the session, the idea of being prepared, meaning with your instruments connected to them, you you have your reeds together. You have your reeds together. You you've been practicing. Your you know the your breathing apparatus is geared to playing woodwind instruments. It's not like you're just going to uh, play at the session or just get ready the minute you get called. This is an ongoing thing. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's 
it's you know four or five six days a week right and, you know and uh, and then I when I do little arrangements of writing I just I won't I just can slide those in at night I and see. here and there and right. I'm pretty fast pretty fast on the computer and what I usually write are more jazz oriented things like this Dixieland music or I did all the source music for uh, uh, a movie a Warner Brothers movie and um, and it was all set in 1949. Was that the Gangster? Gangster Squad. So, yeah. 49, and, you know, I'm right. And we played all that. We know that. So right. I got that gig, and, um, and, uh, and that, that was fun. So, I mean, so, you know, I'm not uh, writing Star Wars and doing all that. I'm just doing these, these, these nice things. But it's, it's easy, and it's fun, and it adds a little income. Sure. And, it, and, and, and if you let someone else do it, it could be terribly wrong. Right. So I can remember doing a horn date, and Jared when I called Jerry, and I said, "Jerry, it's just so simple. Why can't they?" He says, "They don't know. Go ahead and just do it. You know, just the voicing of a good horn section on like a James Brown thing could be just by a classical orchestrator or something. They just don't know." So no, that, he says, that, yeah. "You're good. Do it." And I, you know, I was just kind of curious of why somebody wouldn't know that. <laughs> I guess that's. How it works. Yeah. Yeah. We got on one date and they put the trumpets and octaves, the two trumpets, and we had a tenor and a trumpet. No, it's trumpet, trumpet, sax, bone, or something, you know. Go, and, and I go, why did you put the trumpets and octaves? Because, well, Haydn, you know, da da da, da da, and going, oh my God, Haydn. I like the power of the octaves, and I go, oh boy. So yeah. we the, fixed it. The, the, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we just fixed it. Yeah. It, it, well, that's so, what happens in this industry. There's no rhyme or reason you could have fantastic musicians in a fantastic situation for a high-paying gig and, <laughs> and and then the music is passed out and it doesn't matter it, it can be uh, yeah. interesting yeah of, and it some of it can be very exciting and it can be different and new and I and, and I really invite it I, I I take it on as a challenge and uh, there's people that have come up a different way through electronics or something they could come up with some really cool stuff and uh, it doesn't all have to be just perfectly laid out for us. It can be a little different, and mm -hmm. I, I really do like that part of it. Okay. Don't like the technique of recording now with the, with the striping, and we do parts different times. It's an assembly. Right, and you don't have the interaction. Uh, yeah, uh, that takes a little of your soul away, and then it also displays the skillness, the, the skill set of your musicianship, and if you're just a so I don't so much call it mu music playing. It's like musical skill. You just have to be more dedicated to a tuner, tempo, t the clicks. Mm -hmm. And so I'm good at that. I, I kind of grew up that way. I had a sequencer the minute it came out. I'm, I'm kind of like all that stuff. And so, uh, so some people. Does, are, so it doesn't bother you playing with electronics and trying to no, blend. No, I do them. it a lot, and a lot of right. budgets mean that you're going to be playing along with synthesized strings, and you're playing the flute or something, not with a, other people interacting. So there's a different discipline there, right. and the players that are good at that work a lot. But if you're just a freewheeling oboe soloist or something that just needs to hear the strings to tune, or or, or or besides, the tuning needs to be not on the meter, so to speak. Right. They just hear it different, and they can stretch it, which is very, really lovely. They don't, they don't do so well because they're so used to hearing the perfection. Right. 
So we, my thing is, is just to say to a young player is the synthesizers play in tune and time. So you got to do that. And then you can add tone, beautiful tone, and, ex and some expression within that. That's what you get. But these two things are off the table. So if someone said, oh, he's a great horn player, but he just always is he's a little shady on the time, he won't work. No. The gimmick, but they'll work with a, but he has a beautiful tone and his expressive quality and his range is beautiful. So they sort of fade away in this, this little more detailed environment we're in. Not everybody, but um, the, it happens. That, so the, those fundamentals of, of, of time and pitch have to be addressed early on in one's playing and studies and there's no ambiguity. You have to do it. So uh, what would you recommend to uh, young players besides having, a, obviously, a tuner to work with and, uh, and learning how to tune uh, and make things sound in tune, even against an electronic sound coming out of a tuner? Uh, what, what devices or exercises might you suggest? Well, I guess I kind of, drones kind of are very cool because then you're not so looking at the meter. I don't like any uh, tuners that have like red lights and green lights and you know they're sort of feel like, like I'm being judged. Right, just like, an analog like, meter. So right. I have I have an old tuner. That I well, one of the old Korgs. Yeah, and I was yeah. sort of a tuning nut when I grew up, and right before the the chromatic one that I used, the AT12, which I sort of have right. an obsession with, and I collect. I have 26 of them. I'm sorry. Really? Yeah, and I'm not a hoarder, but I do have a lot of those <laughs> tuners, and I like to give them to people and. Uh, and uh, I have them all around the house. And it was that you had to tune the A, and then you had to move it to B flat at the time. You know, I know this sounds the old old, really old. Tunes. So yeah, I wanted yeah. to buy twelve of these, and it's so you had one, one for each one. So I could look at this big. I had it all designed, right. and right then they came out with that model. Right. And I go, oh, God, this solves the problem. <laughs> I, I don't know. Sorry, they're interesting in the tuning. I'm interested in the, the relationship between, say, a uh, a C on the alto flute. Uh, and the next note. So I can see there's a tendency there that this note is going to be a little under. And that's what I like to use a tuner. And then the needle, needles just sort of hovering. I get bigger. If I'm anywhere in the middle, I'm golden. It's I don't cool. need to be on it. And right. uh, But uh, that's what I look for is the relationships. Is You right. go with this and, note. And by doing so, I mean, that's really saying you have to know the tendencies of every note on every one of your instruments. So therefore, uh, do you tend to have multiple uh, instruments of each type, or do you tend to just have one or two, uh, in other words, clarinets, B-flat clarinets, C flutes, uh, alto saxes, tenor saxes? Are you one who has a lot of these instruments? I know people have five, six altos, five, six flutes, or do you tend to have like one that you really focus on and maybe a backup? I'm, I'm a little bit more in the backup. I have maybe five tenors or something, but they're easy, and they're not. But alto saxophone is so personal that I, I don't play it. I just don't do switch. But uh, uh, I have always have good backups because it, you know if I run over my soprano or the pad falls out. Right. I mean, I opened up my alto flute case the other day, and a spud had come out. I got a backup. Right. And I'm, I can walk out. I mean, it's a professional thing to do. Um, so you need your backup. 
And, and all your backup phone generally very yeah, similar, very to, similar. To, to your yeah. prime. Right, so it's not just getting a whole uh, array of flutes. Mm -hmm. and, and I had done that at one point where you have three or four models of flutes and the, and the scales are all completely different. And so when you, on, on a gig with doubling, and you're trying to remember the tendencies of yeah. every note, it gets, it's too much. Yeah, even with the same model, it's slightly different. So right. I have the same soprano, it's brand new, I bought it. It's, in the, it's in the, just in my safe. It's never been played, it's ready to go if something happens. Right. But it's overplayed, it's the same instrument. Right. And then I have a, um, my alto is five numbers away from my other alto. It's five. There you go. Nineteen fifty. Yeah. So yeah. it's very similar. Yeah. The pro there are a lot of problems with these horns, but at least I know what they to face. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I had been given that advice many years ago from a very famous New York doubler, Harvey Estrin, who told me, he said, look, you've got to know the tendencies of every note. Which notes speak better, which notes speak more difficult? Which notes are going to uh, allow you to vibrate more on which notes are less? I mean, you have to know all, every intricacy of every note on every instrument. He said, now, if you, and this is when I had three different makers. I think I had a Haynes and a Powell and a Brandon Cooper, and I wasn't sure what was going on, and I threw myself in a tiz, and he made it very clear. And uh, I, I took that advice, and I was very That's glad. That's good. It's good. I mean, that doesn't mean you don't look around and switch, you know, but a switch for me is a big deal because I just, part of my deal is I don't change instruments often and mouthpieces and I love the, to play the one. I do, I will change reeds, of course, you right. know, but uh, that familiarity is every day that some, every time I see a guy come in with another tenor mouthpiece, I go, okay, because he's learning. And every in the next day, another one. I'm going. This is great. I'm going straight ahead. I know exactly what mine will do. Now, how long did it take you to come to that realization? Or, or oh you well, never... you know, I think when I got good, good enough equipment, you know, I think when I got solid equipment, I could, I could rate another instrument. So when I went to college, of course, I had a student instrument, you know, clarinet. <laughs> so he says you got to go down to the store. This is my probation year, and right, you got to right. get an R13. I just said, get, I mean, the guy hands me a box, and I'm trying. So <laughs> there's, I play that, and then I, could, then I could learn that, and then I could go, and, and you could start to improve and find something now. Then when you get to some, some point, you know it works. It's very difficult to find something else. So, well, especially if you started and you had a, a, a top-level professional yeah, instrument. Yeah, you, know. you do. And I went through quite a few, few flutes. Uh, those are the most expensive. So that's, of course, that's for a young guy. Just, I mean, I didn't have any money. And uh, you just work your way up until you can get something. And then you try to just improve slightly each time. But you're spending money on your instruments is extremely important because that's, that's your connection. And if you think you're just going to make an old bass clarinet that's a LeBlanc or, well, I don't say any names, but Something that's just really too old and not secure, and um, you, you, you'll muscle it in, and you'll it, it you'll just lose to a guy that's got a brand new Tosca bass clarinet, right, you know, right. where the low E ain't flat anymore. You right, know? and the pit and the scale is uniform. It's very and... nice. It blends in there with people. You you and you know that's twelve thousand dollars or something. So there you go. It's a it's an expensive business. Young players should know that. Right. Yes. But you you don't need those right away. Right. So I don't. I was when I was taking. I had a Muramatsu flute, a hard, uh, heavy wall. And then when I started taking those lessons again, 
later on, and then I ordered a Brannon Cooper, which was a lot of money. And I played that for many years, and then I got a Howell, so I was like late to the game. I noticed some other people getting loans and getting instruments early on, and I think that's a good idea. Yeah. Um, because it, the colors or the shape of the instrument can help develop your playing. And very if much. you are stuck there with a very simple sounding instrument, you may not be able to develop the colors or your quality of tone. Right, and when you meet some, and you're up for a gig against someone who has, there we go back to that same analogy. I always look at the orchestras that I play with, and, and pound for pound, that first trumpet player has the best tone, the first flute player, she's got the best tone, or he, and uh, that's why they're first. They can always play the notes, too, but maybe, but, but they're, you know, so that your lead alto player, he should be, really have a nice dynamic tone. Right. And uh, second alto player could be just wonderful and you could just play beautifully, but that that's the voice you hear. Right. And I didn't really think about tone for many years. I was just interested in notes, like we all are, just trying to get through the job. And uh, I wish I had, I wish I had thought more of that as a professional. I was just more, there's such a daunting task to play all the instruments. If I got the note out, I was, considered victory now it has to be right right so it's now it's another whole game well personally to me that sure. I, I mean I've done all the things wrong or many things I switched to an alto mouthpiece that I couldn't play uh, after I wanted to get off it I couldn't play if I picked up a Meyer mouthpiece I sounded like eighth grader so I had to go through a berg I had to go downhill to learn how to blow the instrument again. I did the same in the tenor, the 70s, 80s rock and roll tenor. Duclos. Playing all that stuff, playing yeah. all the pop record yeah. dates, everything's growing, hot soloist, you know, stuff that you do. And then I go, I got to play Autolik, I sound like a seventh grader. And I was going to with Steve Houghton to Russia, I mean to uh, South Africa, a jester, and I just sat against the wall for six months and blew the tenor. Trying to get back the what it, what it is to blow a tenor. So I've... You know, like this, you know, you just, because I, I was biased. I think I'm really, you're good. But you can lose it real quick. Sure. And uh, if there's anything uh, I can also tell a young player is just don't get sucked into something that doesn't, that just doesn't actually work. Play in the middle and then lean. So right. I plan to play in the middle and I can lean over to sort of classical, film classical, and I can go over here to rock and then I can play in the middle. And uh, if you get way over to one edge, you'll just never make it over. Right. And and you in switching the mouthpiece is not the answer to say, okay, now I'm going to be Lenny Pickett. Uh, uh, what a marvelous, I wish I could play one bar that he plays. It's dripping with beauty and soul. He's one of my favorite players. But I can't play that. I'm sure I can't play that setup because I have to play like unison with a cello on a minute. Right, he's playing like a number ten. Whatever uh, it is, open. it's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I'm, you know, it's like just grabs me, and uh, so I, uh, I make do. And uh, but I have to work with other people. We have to kind of stay in the middle. Right. But there's a beauty to that because you you can shape your tone a little bit different, and you always have a good tone. Right. Right. You, you just shape it a little. So the idea is that it's it's great to know about other equipment and other mouthpieces, what's to offer, but you really should have a, a main a main squeeze, as well, it were. Well, <laughs> I mean, if you play like a very close classical mouthpiece because you're a classical saxophone player and now you have to play lead alto, you just don't have enough. 
right. and I sort of experimented a lot with alto mouthpieces because that's just what I was looking for. And I got when I got passed around an eighty tip, I gained nothing. Uh, so I, I go well. Let's not create more problems. You know, the bigger tip. So I I draw my battles and I try to. I'm a little bit. I I I don't play just a safe flute. I play it power with a philharmonic head. Something that you can you can play into. Right. Um, but I'm not used to. But I'm signing up for that. I'm glad to take that responsibility on. I play a hard setup on clarinet. I'm glad to take that on. And the alto, I'm glad to work a little harder than someone else because they may be on a five or something. I'm on a seven or something a little bigger, a little more firmness, a little more. I just have to say that I'm I'm willing to put in the effort. But if I just right. barely play the alto, I wouldn't want to play that because then right. you're going to pick it up and you'd be out of tune. Right. So you have to pick your battles. And and so among the instruments, as you go back and forth within a day or from day to day, week to week, they're, even though they're slightly different as far as the reed strength or the opening, but there is a somewhat of a similarity. They're not. It's not like you're playing one setup that's incredibly resistant, another setup with a number one and a half read. I mean, there, there's sort of a similarity so that you can make that flex, have that flexibility in maneuvering yeah. among the various I like woodlands. to fight with them a little bit. I, I don't want anything too easy. And I need, I, I try to get purity out of them because I have I, anything that's kind of tinselly or edgy or strident is not a good recording tone. So, you know, you want that fat trumpet and you want that bassoon to be right there. And if you tend to play on the high side of the, of with edge, it uh, is not very pretty. Right. So a harder read in, a, in that tends to get that for me. You know, maybe not for bebop playing. Maybe you could play a little softer. But for, uh, all right, now let's. Uh, just uh, you've alluded to it somewhat, but just to uh, perhaps clarify, how does Dan Higgins organize his day uh, in practicing and preparing for the various responsibilities that are thrust your way? Is there? Do you have a a steady routine, or is it uh, as it comes and you adjust at, at to the jobs as they appear? Yeah, it's as it comes because uh, if I'm sitting on a movie. Gladly sitting, but uh, on, on clarinet and bass clarinet or something, there's no reason for me to practice a flute that week. I'm willing to just let that ride. Okay. Because all I'm going to be just warming up and be a little puffy, or, or I just won't get anywhere. Right. It just, uh, uh, I just won't. I mean, you maybe could learn a new trill or tremolo or some fake thing or something, but basically you can't help yourself. And then when you, if I'm on flute, I don't play any clarinet. So, and then if I play clarinet, I need to do what I call three days, which is to build up the chops. I can play about an hour, and I kind of blow out. Right. And then I'll come back. I can play about a half hour. Right. And then at night I can play about fifteen twenty minutes. Right. And that's a, a weightlifting right, routine to, to build it up. That, but that's something that I might do two weeks in front of what, when I know I'm right. going to be on the spot. Right. And I can can feel the music, or I know the composer, right. and I go. I, I, we're going to be doing the solos. We're going to be playing clarinet all day. It's a very physical thing. If you get caught, you won't be able to play it. Right. And then it's take after take, and each right. one has to be pretty. So there's a great, there is a great deal of thought and understanding as to what you're f capable of physically and musically and what the job is going to be uh, entailing. 
And so it, it's... So you it's, sound the best. Some days right. you, do, you know, hey, I'm not going to turn down to day to night on the flute after I did the clarinet. I mean, right. I'm still going to go work, but I won't, it's not going to help me to practice it. Right. So I'll just go in and I'm just going to get there early, warm up, see where we go, and here we go. Okay, and so when you practice any one of these instruments and you know you have something in front of you, what are the things that you practice? In other words, what is that routine? Let's say even if it's the half hour or hour warm up, what is it on each of the instruments that you focus on to get yourself in, in gear on that instrument? Uh, if it's a flute, yeah, I, I, I just go, kind of go through my intervolic and the Moise and things. If it's all working, I can move on to material and etudes. But when it's not, I have to stay there because there's no sense in practicing a piece when you can't do a nice slur because you're just not right. Right. So you can't make music in the piece. Uh, I think we just, I just go back there. So I give it a college try and let it go for a couple hours and see what I get. Right. And I practice uh, usually around the top and page 92 and all the tonguing. It's about 20 pages of a lot of articulation. Yeah. Yeah. That helps. And I make up little exercises that, that trick me with my ears by going chromatically or whatever to make up something musical and work on vibrato and, and that. And on the clarinet, single tonguing, of course, is going to come into play. I practice in double tonguing. A lot of people are writing... Very fast Cop now, I know. They're <laughs> kind of copying the viola parts over, and we're kind of struggling. So <laughs> yeah. around 140, 160, and I got a movie coming up with that. So I like to practice a little double time because that's new to me. I'm not really very good at it. I hear brilliant players doing it. Yeah. But even if you don't get much on the cuss stroke, it's, your time is good. And because right. if you just take on water and you're slowing down the section and the flutes, it's a drag. Yeah. So anyway, I'm working on, I work on that. And the reeds for the clarinet. And the saxophone obviously are paramount. So you might, it might take you a half hour to find a read. Or in my case, I need about three or four because I won't know what I'm playing. So I'll have a classical type of read, you know, something nice and uh, on warm. The same, on the same mouthpiece? Oh, yeah. Okay. And that's how I kind of switch. And then I'll have something just like kind of hot, maybe a good lead alto read. And maybe I'll have something kind of trashy if they want something really rock and roll. Maceo Park or something like that. You right. just go, right. and and then I'll and then I can I can manipulate those when I get there. Like I can go. Oh, this is really good. But it's a little soft because now on a big sound stage at, at home it felt pretty. I'll just clip it, and I just clip it up to what I need. Especially if I don't need a lot of low notes or something. I don't need a lot of response there, but I need a really beautiful high register solo like Ronnie Lang style, sweet. Uh, I want a pretty tone there, and this reed will do it. And this reed, maybe the next one was one that was a little buzzier right. because it was used yesterday or something. But I go through reeds every job. I don't right. try to get a lot out of it. Right. I, I go through a lot of reeds. I don't. Okay. I just throw them up. I, if it doesn't work, I don't work on it. Okay. I don't have any time. Okay. So, well, especially as busy as you are, one understands that. And uh, uh, but basically, the idea of being a chameleon in so many styles, influences also the fact of, that you're going to choose reeds that are going to be appropriate for different styles. And that's so important uh, for doublers to hear, young or experienced doublers, that we, you know, one reed doesn't do it all. No, no, I mean, and then maybe I'm a better reed picker than other people. I don't know if I'm a better player or musician, but I do always have, I'm prepared. And I, you know, of course, Gary Foster and these people, with all the respect of the business that I learned from, all, same, same routine, you know. Because we just want to do it nicely, and uh, 
I always have a tenor reed in there that has SG on it, a little airy, and it's my Stan Getz. Stan Getz, yeah. <laughs> and it's just in case they want a lot of fur on that. Right. And on a close mic, I mean, I mean, it doesn't sound like Stan Getz because Bobby did and Gary did, but right. I, I still I have to have a little leaner right. of that, and I try to keep that, and then I have one like rock and roll for Jerry Hay and stuff like that. And then I might have one that's, you know, that really might play up higher. You know, right. might be good for solo, right. a little stiffer. Right. But I find this in incredibly interesting, Dan, because uh, the older players, I mean, guys who played in the 30s and 40s into the 50s, uh, who I met as a young player, they generally played one mouthpiece, and they did it all on that. But the amount of styles that they were responsible for were quite small compared to what you are responsible for now. And yet finding a good mouthpiece that's flexible and having your reeds adjusted to the style of music. It, 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 that's a very, I think, interesting... That is the, I think that's a, a, a nice... It's a good starting spot because when you change the mouthpiece or... Like I brought my 30s BT clarinet to the Dixieland thing. I had it there. Oh, okay. Uh, and I didn't use it. Was it one of Tom Rainier's? No, no. He, he, he has as many as I have tuners. I, See, he's a, he's a hoarder. No. Uh, anyway, so I, I thought if they really... I did... Um, uh, Bessie Smith story on, on and uh, that on uh, I think it was on HBO or something like that and they were real picky and that was a really soft read and that really had to be that really con I don't say bad but really period very thin like a Les Lester type of oh clarinet. Like clarinet. yeah yeah very yeah just like really like and uh, if you didn't vibrate on a note that that like, oh yeah it took me like about an hour to get up to where I was vibrating every note and I kind of knew the style, but I would catch myself. They right. would never leave a note untouched. Wow. And so we did that, and that's where I really, and I had a kind of a bad read, and I had a mouthpiece that's much brighter, different than I play, a completely different set. That was real extreme. But generally, I just can use my regular setup, and I put a little bit different read on it. Right. Obviously, I couldn't play uh, the classical literature on the alto saxophone on my mouthpiece in Mark VI, I would have to probably get a modern horn and an F sharp key and and a tighter mouthpiece to to navigate that. I don't do that that extreme. Right. So, but I can lean it over so that on a film call or something that you won't know. Well, let, let's <laughs> let's talk about one of the great uh, film calls that you had and that you demonstrated that ability to get a, a sort of legit approach to saxophone and yet inflect with a have a jazz and as well and mix it all was catch me if you can. John Williams' score, which uh, now we know as a printed version called Escapades, and, and people play it with uh, symphony orchestras and with concert bands, as well as with piano, and it's published, and it's, that was one of the most impressive uh, saxophone uh, performances in a movie I've ever heard. Yeah, and I can t I share a moment with you. I, uh, I was in San Diego early in the millennium, with a friend, great saxophone player from San Diego, named Paul Sunfor, who's oh, Charles, yeah. Charles McPherson's son, uh, brother-in-law, and we went. It was a rainy day. We were killing some time because we were doing a show together out there, and we went in to see this new Spielberg film. And we're sitting there, and the first some like four or five minutes is this introduction with the beautiful, you know, first movement being played. And when it was over, Paul and I were applauding. Because <laughs> we, it was an afternoon, like a midday afternoon showing in San Diego, so we were not too many people in the audience. It was it knocked us out. And many years later, I had the chance to play um, 
play the uh, symphony or with the symphony orchestra up in the east and play escapades. And what a tour de force that was. And uh, you demonstrated a flexibility that is really uh, exactly what you're talking about here. Having the ability with one setup with, yet with a reed that can give you both sides of the spectrum at will. Um, so actually for myself, I don't know if the, everyone else is interested, but can you tell me how that came about? In other words, how uh, you, know, you get the call, you know you're going to do it, but now you're, get, you're being given a concerto in well, essence yeah, to play. Well, that, that was interesting, but we don't... Now, uh, John and a lot of orchestras, they put out uh, PDF files for you to all look on the computer, but this was before that. So I saw Alan Estes, the great vibist, and movies, maybe a Mark Shaman movie a couple of weeks in front, and he's back there on every break. He's just playing all this <laughs> stuff. Anyway, we're good friends. I walk by and go, Alan, what are you working on? He goes, oh, I'm working with Williams in a couple of weeks. And I look at it, I go, oh, I'm there too. I'll be glad to hear you. I'll be interested to hear you play it. Right. I didn't know I had You didn't know you would no, do it. I didn't, and nobody that's... told me I was going to do it. I just showed up, alto sax, MGM, 10 o'clock, and that's it. And so there we go, and we, I just play it. There's no music. I don't know. I just kind of figured it out. Look at it. I'm there always an hour early, so I look at it and go, well, that's, that's cool. I could play all the notes, and I go, that's kind of hip, you know? really dug it. There was a little Gil Evans thing in the first movement at the end. I'm like, man, this is going to be a fun week. Yeah. And it just kept coming my way. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that's how that went down. Is it's just a job. So and, you, had, you had no music ahead of time no. before you work, walked in on the first day? On the, on the motion picture score, he elaborated on, just for the soundtrack record only, on the ballad section, which he called the father scene, which ended up being the second movement. That, he said, we have a pickup date in about three weeks. And I got that two days in front. I did see that, and it never stopped. And I, and I, I got home, and it was like two days later. And I was working like on the flute all week or something. And I, I went into my studio just to play it down once to see if I could play it once. And I kind of could make it because I was just like I'm balancing here. I'm not. I'm putting the saxophones. That movie's over. I'm. But here's this thing. And uh, so he wrote that second movie, the concerto. Then and I. He was very kind, and I went up to him and said, you know, John, there's a lot of playing. He goes, oh, yeah, I know. So we picked it, a couple pickups for the movie, really easy, and then we started into this, and we took lunch. And I was shot by then, of course, and then we did another take or so after lunch. So he was sensitive enough to give me the hour off. Right. And then when we recorded this thing, then I took two months to prepare. Like if I was, when I came out to play with you guys, right. I, I run up there because I have to put on be able to play that, yeah. but I, I know that it's only the rehearsal and maybe a few pickups, and then we play our gig, and I'm done, but when we're going to record it, and I had the orchestra has to learn it again, and so yeah. we're going to keep playing a lot of it, and I needed to have extra, so that was where I put the fluid away, and I was like, so it just yeah. goes like this, but that was a, it's a fun movie because it was something that uh, it had a life to it, we, we made it got to play some concerts with it. and Yeah, it, well, you were uh, nationally televised with the Boston yeah, Pops. Yeah, we did a couple PBS PBS and, specials with it. It's, yeah. just, it's, a, it's something that lives on a little bit. It's really nice. And yeah. I think it's fun to play on a saxophone. It's well written. Absolutely. And, and we... And, uh, and, it, and there's some stuff in there that is tricky. I mean, there is... <laughs> you have to know... A you have to be able to go from B to B flat a little bit with the bis, which yeah, is yeah. a couple of those techniques that I have that I... 
that's switching, and I yeah. don't know if you could play some of the figures if you didn't have some little fakeroos. Yeah, oh, there's, <laughs> it, it, it's a challenge. And for any of the young doublers watching, if you haven't checked out, uh, it's a wonderful picture. Catch Me If You Can is a terrific picture, but the score and the score dance play won an Academy Award. Absolutely, it's brilliant, uh, and so so period, and that's what he wanted. And Spielberg would walk around with his camera, and they he liked it, so he'd elaborate on it. John sometimes doesn't write the whole score first because we're doing it over a period of time that he will write. And then as it goes, he develops things. And Spielberg, well, well, it could have been like, we don't like the sax. Well, then it would just move another way. So what if that would have been a vibraphone playing that lead? But the right. vibes do shadow the sax all the way through. So, yeah. And a lot of people think it's improvised. It's not a note. I know, but yet it's it... not a grace note that I add. I don't do anything. It's all written. It's all written out, just play it the way but it is. But it has the feeling of yes. being improvised. Yeah. And that, I think, comes back to what you said earlier of having played of these other musics. And you're not being, this is a particular uh, date where you're not being asked to improvise, but your experience as someone who's played jazz and played in different styles comes through in it, that written it helps. Music. It helps to know right. classical, to be able to you know, study classical saxophone. That's all I did at North Texas. And, and uh, so that was our lessons. And then to be able to play jazz, it, it's a nice, nice to know both. If you just played jazz, I don't know if it would sound as that great. It's a little hard that way. With Especially control. the con control at the you bottom control. of the horn against the strings, pitch-wise. Yeah, and, you got and, and the color of the tone and the focus. Yeah, and, you got to be. Gotta, yeah. And then, and then if you just play classical, maybe you don't know the articulations. I don't really play everything that's exactly there. Right. Right. I got them. I got the finale file, so I could print it out and change some A flats to G sharps to make it fit, fit to, my idea of uh, harmony. Right. So right. I would, the way it looks. I know. I understand. <laughs> yeah. I remember. And that. I made it big. It was uh, a big uh, note, so I could oh, see it. Oh man! Them. <laughs> I, I remember. I, I I had a couple of performances with the symphony orchestra doing that. I, oh man! I wish I had called you because oh, I, you I, I made the mistake of not having a mic there. I figured, well, I'll project. No, no, no. With that, that big an orchestra, give me a little mic. Yeah, they start to soar. Yes. Oh, my And that's goodness. just, uh, I'm just sitting right there by the clarinets. In the oh, really? You are in, in front of the orchestra? But not on the score. Not really? No, just, uh, just playing from back there. Okay. So the time, the bass was over there. Yeah. We don't use clicks, so we, we, we got pretty good. The vibe was where he would be, so we were kind I of see. in a little wow. bit of a triangle. Wow, in, in performance, like with the Boston Pops, we move up. You were up front. Then we were good. But yeah, uh, yeah. on the score, I just, but I love that studio. That's the best sounding room what, what from studio was that? MGM. It's MGM. called Sony now, but I, the old timers call it Sony, uh, MGM. And we, it's just, when you sound, when you play a note in there, it's just joyful. Well, that's that's another uh, discussion to be had. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just helps you. Right. It just it's okay. you know it's fun. Okay. But I did remember playing, getting clipping the read a couple of times because I, I could hear that it needed to be like that, but not so you can't articulate. But it 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 can't be easy playing. You, you got to have it's got to still have an English horn quality or something, something integrity in the, around the tone. Right, the overtones. You don't want to be have, buzzy. Or right, you had a more balanced overtone series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, before we wind this up, what I'd like to know, what is the music that, when you have no responsibilities as far as a gig coming up, let's say the next day or whatnot, where if you're sitting back and listening to music, what music do you listen to? What are you, the who are the artists that still inspire you that you tend to gravitate to and listen to? Well, I'm kind of go back. I sort of it's just 
uh, I list cannonballs, just just does it for me crazy like crazy. And, uh, and Bird, and, and it's a capture of time with Bird. It's like when he died in 55, he never played anything but that. And there's a purity to that that I just love. And I hear, you know, obviously you're hearing a modern play, you're hearing pieces of things. So I love that purity because I'm called on to do that a lot, but I don't do it for that much reason. I just love that. And Train, the spiritual emotion that he has in two notes is it's so gripping that no matter the player, I, that's just, I can I just, that, you know, the notes, you can play the notes in the transcript, that, that, none of that is there. It's a different thing. It's another whole plane. I don't even know how it is. It makes me chills to think about it, what is happening there. So I really listen to that. And like, you know, I like, still like Pete Fountain and Louis Armstrong. And of course, Brecker is just probably the most influential saxophone player. Of our lifetime. Of my time, yeah. and, mm -hmm. and I'm just at awe. And of course, Eddie Daniels, just, just as a clarinet player, I had the Benny Rides again, and I listened to it like for two months, and I go, okay, I'm going in. And I went to my <laughs> studio, and I transcribed the first one. Each night, I transcribed a solo in pencil, and I would go and put it in the computer. And I, in just playing it, knowing it, I, he's making it up. I'm just catching up to him. Yeah, oh. It's like I'm chasing the tail. Yeah. And it's so beautiful. And that yeah. that that does it, and uh, that and and when David Sanborn came out, he was another just huge influence. My roommate brought Taken Off '76, the first record, and he brought it over, and he, we were in a house and he had drums, right. and he uh, he said, uh, "Here, I bought the record, you know, you know," and then he went to dinner. Then when he came home, I said, oh, Gene, thing, I bought the record. He goes, I just did it. Why did you buy it? I go, because it doesn't work anymore because I had needle drop. Needle drop so much. It doesn't work anymore. <laughs> and I had every solo transcribed by the time he got home. Wow. And I was performed a little Sanborn band. I got a level layer mouthpiece, and I went around campus, wrote in tunes like that. And I thought it was just cat's meow. I've never yeah. heard anything yeah. that, that interesting and the little it, things that he had and the way it was recorded and the electricness of it. Yeah, it's, and it's, passion and it's beautiful. I just like, oh, and so it just it, it just grabbed me, because yeah. I had a tape of him, I had a tape of Bird, I had a cassette tape of Train, and Tom Scott, because he was hot and he was so concise and perfect in his eight bars. Yeah, I couldn't play a harmonic on the tenor, but I take him off on the soprano because <laughs> that's the only way I could get the note and figure out the notes. <laughs> figure out because what he's he was, up and there. then yeah. but he was a like those guys that were just so concise and Sanborn was so pure and. It's just that those guys and there's a great, un, unbelievable players out there now that that were just ridiculously great. But I still like that period of when that was captured. Right. And and when I listen to it, I'm not listening to somebody like myself, sort of, uh, kind of going back. All of a sudden, you've articulated something, and oh, like if you're playing, trying to play like Bird, and you do something in Cannibal, that you, wow, you wouldn't have ever done that, or. Yeah. Train wouldn't have done it like this. Right. It just, I don't know, it's like, wow, it's like, that's so great, though, that, that yeah. era. But to keep, to keep going back to these giants, these heroes, uh, is, is not only humbling, but it's also um, invigorating. Yeah. And, 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 and gives you, you know, regardless of what type of music you're doing for, to make the money, when you go back to those guys. Uh, and and people, it's real. Those are real recordings. That's it. 
that's the recording. There's no fixing. There's no tuning. Right. Done. One And shot. if it didn't come in right, it's fine. It's on there. Yeah. I just I love that aspect of it. And yeah. We get into this perfect world, and it's a way to escape into an imperfect world. Right. So <laughs> my night job could be listening to Cannonball, but my day job is... Uh, Right, putting eighth notes exactly with the click track right. somewhere. And, 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 and a little anecdote: I remember uh, the album Focus Stan gets, and <laughs> I knew the uh, concert master on that day, whose name was Jerry Tarak. He was a very popular player around New York at the time, and he was teaching at my undergraduate school. And I remember asking him. I said, "What was that like? I mean, you know, how, how long did it take?" He said, "It was the most unbelievable thing." He said, "I couldn't believe it." We had this music, we had rehearsed it beforehand because the date was supposed to happen earlier at Stan Getz had lost his father around the time the original uh, recording was supposed to happen. So it came off maybe a month later or something like that. But the strings had already rehearsed it. He said, this guy just came in, everything was first take. I think maybe there was one, maybe Knight Rider, they did two takes. He said, but everything, he just played it down. It was unbelievable. It was perfect. We, 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 he never had seen the music. He just, he just came in and, and, and did it. He couldn't believe it. But that's that purity, that no-nonsense, no right to the tape and, and uh, right what comes out of the being first yeah, time it's, through. It's, yeah, no, it's really that. So I hope it comes back like that. But that's not going to hedge bets on it. <laughs> <laughs> we got what we got. I, yeah, yeah. yeah. So a final question, Dan. Uh, you've... Uh, been an influence for so many doublers throughout the country over the, these many decades. And many young players come to see you and play for you, perhaps even study with you. What advice would you give today in, in the music world of today that has changed so dramatically from uh, even when we, have be we began our careers? What advice would you give to young woodwind doublers today uh, looking at what's there now and what may be coming up uh, down the road? Yeah, it's a little bit of a moving target. It's a, you know, everybody sees their generation and they see it. Uh, I say just get as wide as you can. And, like, I mean, I write and arrange and I can copy. I can do things uh, other than playing just to su supplement it because you may need it. It's, uh, and uh, um, the double read aspect was a big uh, bonus. Uh, when I started, I, I tried it. I didn't. It, it affected me. In my saxophone playing went down, and my flute playing went down. And I go, you know, I'm okay. I'm gonna add writing to that, and that's four things. And I always can think of improv. Improv is another whole problem. You know, another addition. So, you know, take on what you can. But when you do it, do it full full force, or you know, just sort of focus and. On one thing and see what you can make. Maybe you need to be more uh, an artist. If you feel you have that, you might have a better chance than following in our footsteps because it just may not be there. Right. And perhaps you can create a new thing. Or uh, so that's another hard road too. But it's um, I don't I don't know. I, I was used to be very positive, and, and if you want to wait it out, I mean, it took me about five years to start getting out of live work into some studio work and hybriding it and wasn't it was another five years before I gave up that work just to focus on the studio work I think that's longer than that now yeah I hate to ask a young player to stick around and for 10, practice waiting years. for a yeah. small yeah. chance 
Uh, it's just one of those, but it's great <laughs> when you do it. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's right. worth it's worth the energy and the time. Right. Uh, that's uh, I have just such great joy for it, and I just enjoy working with all these great <laughs> players that are just the supreme level. Right. It's just a bonus. It's like a yeah. to, to go into a date and hear these people, and you just whoa! It's just it's great, you know. Not a regional band or anything like that. This is a real deal. Yeah. yeah. And I'm a visitor. <laughs> you know, I you know I'm lucky to be there, and I'm just enjoy it. So it's worth doing. It just it, it will have a run up for you. Um, right. You know, and there'll be, you know, moments where you wonder why. Now you're 30, and you go, well, wow, I haven't done a. Academy Awards yet, or Emmys, or anything, and oof, you know, the guys are still taking the jobs. You know, you just keep pushing forward. I guess. Right. Um, I can't be that encouraging that that if you do a moderate level of it, that you'll be just working all the time with moderate, a moderate reputation at least or skills, because you have to, you know, people there out there that are doing it are quite experienced. And right. And they should be, and they are. Yeah. Um, and so it's a tough. It's a, there's no question. It's it's going to be a tougher road for younger doublers than it was for us, and maybe it was tougher for our generation than it was for the guys in the 50s, so. 60s. Yeah, uh, it, it's not getting easier, and the requirements are getting more because there are more styles of music. Yeah, that's what we we're the keepers of it. We're yeah. the keepers of style. A lot of what we do is historic. Even even that catch me if you can. It's that in the '60s. That's why there's a sex. Right. So we go in a lot of times when it's a game show theme for a game show, but it's a uh, it's a it's part of the movie that so they're, they're turning on television, so they need the trumpets and the stupid corny '70s '60s game show music. Right. But, so it's just we're not moving forward <laughs> musically. We're just right. doing it again. Right. You know, it's a funk band. Yeah. So interesting that part of it. But yeah. I I say stay the course and and and. And, and, and just forge through because when you get there, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Well, you, and you, you've done that so well, and you've made it fun for us. And uh, oh, thank you again, my friend. Ah, great. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Pleasure. First call, uh, the number one guy. <laughs> the side Dan. of Ventura Boulevard. <laughs> <laughs> Dan Higginson, thank you uh, again for tuning in, and uh, we hope you've enjoyed today's session with Dan. And... Uh, we're going to have him play a little bit now and as a little sequel to our uh, interview, and we hope you'll uh, get a lot out of that as well. Thank you. It's great to be here with Ed and talking about all the, the world of woodwind playing. And uh, I'm just going to talk a little bit about the flute, what I do to sort of warm up on it. All these instruments, if you can get the concept of the instrument, uh, the air and the uh, um, the embouchure, it helps you switching. Because that's all you really have at the end of the day when you switch from one to the next. It's the concept of the instrument. And uh, somebody who just plays one instrument, they already have that concept. It's the only one they have. But we have to switch. So if you're switching to the flute, you have to think about resonance in the air. So I always like to warm up with a few little exercises to get me going, trying to work through different registers to see what's, uh, what's going to work.
try to play musically with vibrato. A lot of woodwind players uh, kind of play straight tone when they get to a, a note, and as a more of a classical training, you should vibrate through it. It's kind of a common problem. And always end with a taper. Another thing that saxophone players and clarinet players do when they're switching to flute is say, I call it a hut. They go, dot. And always make a nice musical taper. And it also keeps your embouchure uh, strong to the end. So you can just fade out nicely. If you were to jump, jump down the octave on the flute, and when you get soft, you're probably not on quite the right embouchure. And then you just keep going through the Moise and you understand how you're going to do that. Always practice the flute softly, too. That uh, shows your control. And uh, the fingers and all this stuff's up to you, and that's all good. But that's what I do on the flute is I think about the air, the vibrato expression. Thanks. I'm going to go to the clarinet. Clarinet, now we got a fast air, and we have uh, a little bit more of a concept of very stiff embouchure here, firm. And we can kind of go anywhere we want anytime with the same airstream, but it has to be fast. I tend to play a little harder reed, and even if it's fuzzy when you try this, it will, if you can clear the reed up, that means you're moving the air through that fuzz. If it's a very clear sounding reed, it's probably too soft. It's probably good for a close mic like this if you're at a home studio or somewhere you want some presence. But when you're playing in a hall, you need to have enough reed to project. And that's a common problem for woodwind players is they go for an easy, an easy reed combination. And then when they're asked to play forward, the tone gets a bit strident. So I just encourage you to increase your reed strength a bit, and um, that'll help you also pedal in beautiful phrases because you'll have this, you, nothing will happen for a while and you'll be able to sneak in nicely. So it's reads a little soft. It's good for maybe in here, something close. And I would even get a little harder one if I was on a sound stage where I would just want to really play forte. And uh, one way I test reeds to see if they're going to be strong enough, this one might do it, is to sort of see if I can sneak in on a high G or so. So it's pretty good. So I, I know that the reed will at least hold up a high G. So then I can. Uh, I can know that that will have enough strength that doesn't get flabby up there. All right. And uh, on the saxophone, on the alto, uh, I just played this, my, my mouthpiece. I, uh, now we're dealing with a little bit of different airspeed. Trying to st still keep uh, the beauty of tone, but get a nice jazz tone, kind of a full tone. I always like to pick uh, a one note to see how uh, how the range of the volume can be, say an F. So I'm playing pretty loud there, and it's not breaking up. That's going to be probably a pretty good read for me. 
And so we've got a kind of a lead alto read here, so to speak, but we can still play it kind of pretty and quiet. And if you had to do some uh, kind of Ellington stuff or something with a little more vibrato, you still have enough power here. So you can kind of shape it that way. And then if you wanted to get a little bit raucous on it, you could play a little funk on the same thing by just keeping your same tone, changing the concept. So a lot of it's just changing your vibrato and changing the little characteristics of the articulation. So you could play. So you can't really change your tone, but you can change those aspects of it. And that's what I think about. If it's more dedicated, I'll change the read slightly just to maybe have that read might have a little more an advantage in the rock world and the other read might have a little bit more advantage. But I try to play a middle, medium setup that allows me to go to both sides. Mm -hmm.